When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Lucifer Lose Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Hey everyone, LML here with a little extra special something for you guys. You all probably know Quinn from the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel by now, since I've done a few collaborations with him before. And we did a more scripted than usual collab on his channel last week that I wanted to share with you guys here. He's kicking off a new podcast format and was kind enough to invite me on for the very first episode, which is all about the magical creatures of A Song of Ice and Fire. You can find the original version on the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube page, which has our discussion accompanied by slick video editing. But for those of you who don't really do the YouTube thing, I thought I'd release it here as a podcast. At the end of this one, I actually drop the beginnings of an exciting new theory about the Green Men, which I eventually will do a longer write-up for, but it's pretty exciting stuff, and I hope you like it, so be sure to listen all the way to the end. Cheers, everyone, and I'll be back with a new scripted episode of Mythical Astronomy probably in a week to two weeks. See you then, guys. We all know about the children of the forest and their hidden cities in the deep woods. Everyone knows the tales of the others, from the land of always winter, who brought their wrath down upon mankind. We all know of the giants, who live in the mountains of the far north. But what about some of the more obscure mythical creatures? Creatures which are hinted at, but you have to dig a little bit deeper to uncover them. I'm Ideas of Ice and Fire, and Lucifer Means Lightbringer joins me in this podcast to discuss the non-human, intelligent, mythological creatures in A Song of Ice and Fire. So thank you so much for coming on today, Lucifer. Why don't you go ahead and let the people know where they can find you? Yeah, you can find all of my stuff at LucifermeansLightbringer.com. Got my Patreon and my YouTube linked from there, so I don't need to give you all those links. Just, uh, you know, actually there's really not, besides the TV, uh, besides the TV show Lucifer... There's not a lot of Lucifer-related stuff on the web, so if you put in Lucifer and Lightbringer, you'll find me. 
And also, you can find me by searching Ideas of Ice and Fire on Twitter. I also have a Facebook page. And if you're interested, I also have a Patreon. I'm putting exclusive content up on Patreon every month. Sometimes I do Dune stuff. Sometimes I do a Song of Ice and Fire stuff. There's some a little bit of Stephen King stuff. And I have some longer videos as well that touch on a lot of stuff. Like I have some Wheel of Time stuff up there as well. So for those of you interested, you could totally pledge a dollar a month and get everything that's up there that's not going up on YouTube. So without further ado, let's get to our topic of today. Now, as I said before, everyone knows about the children of the forest. Now, they've inhabited Westeros for thousands of years. In A Dance with Dragons, Leaf tells Bran that they've been in Westeros for a thousand thousand years, which is basically just another way of saying a million years. So according to Leaf, and I guess according to the children in general, they've been in Westeros for a million years. And the language that they speak is called the True Tongue, and it's supposed to be a language that no human can speak. However, ravens can speak the True Tongue. Now, the children themselves have what appears to be a symbiotic relationship with the weirwood trees. And the children are also known for knowing magic. They're skin changers. They're green seers. But this is all very well-known stuff. These stories are very, very old. Yeah, you know, the children of the forest are the most familiar what you would call humanoid or perhaps therianthropic. Now, a therianthrope, which is hard to say, is basically anything that is a humanoid being that also has animal characteristics. And uh, I first learned the word, uh, you know, from studying the cave paintings at Lascaux and other places where they have very strange beings that, of course, like some people would tell you that they're aliens, but they've got strange shaped heads or maybe they got antlers on their head and Everybody's familiar with like, you know, the stag man image from European folklore where you see some sort of green man that's looks kind of like a deer or a stag. The children of the forest are like that. We're just we're told that they've got spots, they're dappled skin like a doe and they have eyes like a cat and they have four fingers, which end in claws. So their description is is one of, you know, basically it's human like to begin with. But the things that are different are animal traits. You know, George R. R. Martin definitely understands evolution. He understands that things evolve to suit their environments. So you have the children who are like living in these dark caves. They have eyes like a cat so they can see in the darkness. They have ears that are that are big enough so that they can hear things that men can't even hear. So they can probably hear like the echoes off the cave and navigate much better than a person could. So like they, they're evolving to fit their environment, right? They are human-like, but they are different enough that they work better in certain places. Yeah, large eyes in particular are something that you find on nocturnal animals or creatures that live partially underground or completely underground. So that that does make a lot of sense. But what's interesting about the children is that, um, you know, they're the most familiar uh, therianthropic humanoid creature that we have, them and the, the giants, you know, that, that John meets. Um, although... You know, the, I guess the giants are, are somewhat animal-like. They have a more of a hairy skin and a pelt and, and things like that. But the children of the forest are more obviously animal-like. The, the cool thing about the children, though, is that even though we think about them as being confined to Westeros, those of you who read The World of Ice and Fire carefully know that they uh, seem to be scattered elsewhere. And so there's two quotes about this. Um, there's They're both from The World of Ice and Fire. And the first one, it says... In the southeast, the proud city-states of the Quaithai arose. In the forest to the north, along the shores of the Shivering Sea, were the domains of the Woodswalkers, a diminutive folk 
whom many maesters believe to have been kin to the children of the forest. And the reason why they believe that seems to be based on the report of Corlys Valerion, the sea snake. And so the other quote uh, from that's about Corlys Valerion says, The fabled sea snake, Corlys Valerion, lord of the tides, was the first Westerosi to visit these woods. After his return from the Thousand Islands, he wrote of carved trees, haunted grottoes, and strange silences. A later traveler, the merchant adventurer Brian of Oldtown, captain of the cog Spear Shaker, provided an account of his own journey across the Shivering Sea. He reported that the Dothraki name for the lost people meant those who walk in the woods. None of the Ibanese that Brian of Oldtown met could say that they ever met a woods walker, but claimed that the little people blessed a household that left offerings of leaf and stone and water overnight. And uh, that last part is interesting because that's like 100% stereotypical of standard elf folklore. You know, you leave them a little gift so they are benevolent and bless your house. That's very consistent. And that's, of course, where the children of the forest are drawn from, as you have illustrated in a couple of your videos about the children of the forest. So what do you think about this uh, this sighting here? This sounds like children, right? It definitely does sound like children, but I want to just point out one thing. It's proof that children can't exist without the weirwood trees. So I, we, 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 we have to assume that there was a point in time, even on Westeros, where, you know, the children didn't have this relationship with the trees. And That's the fact a good that point, they're yeah. in Essos, it proves that they can exist without the trees. So it's, it doesn't always have to be one and one. Like this is a relationship that formed at some point in history because it's beneficial to both organisms. That's, that's the way a symbiotic relationship yeah, forms. Yeah, because yeah. I, I would have to – I hadn't thought about that, Quinn, but you'd have to think that Corlys Valerion would recognize a weirwood. And so if, if he saw one in the, in the woods there, I mean he saw the carved trees. So obviously he went in the woods and, and – you know, to the, the very part of the woods where they lived, but he didn't say anything about weirwoods, and he probably would have mm -hmm. if they were there. He would have recognized him. So that's a good point. Yeah. Wasn't aware. So yeah, that's something I've wondered about is can other trees be used for, you know, peeping, if you will? <laughs> I think I think so, but I think there is something specific about the weirwood trees that makes them particularly mm. good for it. There's something about them in particular mm. that the children find irresistible that it's, it's just, the relationship just works better for some reason it would explain why they spread all over westeros they were all over the place yeah that does make sense like we see that the children you know if if this sighting here is true and i also want to mention the nathi because they seem to be related to the children too i think um then it seems like well the children basically died out everywhere else except for Westeros. They hung on a lot longer in Westeros, even despite all these wars of the the first men and then the Andals trying to exterminate them. They are still hanging on. Uh, so yeah. yeah, it's perhaps the weirwoods that that is it's the reason why they're clustered there as their last gathering place, if you will. But I, we know, we know the weirwoods have special properties, right? I mean, there's something special. I mean, these trees live forever i mean they, I right mean, that is just, i guess that's the they're different that's the significant thing because the whole thing is they give you access to the river of time and if they're yeah, exactly. eternal trees then it makes sense they have more power in that regard absolutely the ancient world of a song of ice and fire is a very strange place filled with very strange creatures and it's not you know it starts with the children of the forest but it's 
kind of ex- the next step is to realize that the children weren't just in Westeros. They were in Essos, too. And as you begin to look around Essos around the margins, we, we find some pretty weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the World of Ice and Fire. Northwest of Sathorios, in the summer sea, lies the mysterious island of Noth, known to the ancients as the Isle of Butterflies. The people native to the island are a beautiful and gentle race with round flat faces, dusky skin, and large, soft, amber eyes, oft flecked with gold. The peaceful people, the Nathi, are called by seafarers, for they will not fight even in defense of their homes and persons. The Nathi do not kill, not even beast of the field and wood. They eat fruit, not flesh, and make music, not war. The god of Nath is called the Lord of Harmony, oft shown as a laughing giant, bearded and naked, always attended by swarms of slender maidens with butterfly wings. A hundred varieties of butterflies flitter about the island. The Nathi revere them as messengers of the Lord, charged with the protection of his people. Mayhaps there is some truth to these legends, for whilst the docile nature of the Nathi seem to make their island ripe for conquest, strangers from beyond the sea do not live long upon the Isle of Butterflies. And then it goes on to talk about how the butterflies uh, seem to spread some sort of disease that kills people after a year if you're not from there. But the point is they've got those large uh, amber eyes are basically another way of saying golden eyes. And and they're also flecked with little bits of gold. Uh, So that that sounds like they have some sort of magical eyes. And it reminds me of the golden eyes of the children. And they're large like the children. And they're small and peaceful like the children. And the Lord of Harmony sounds an awful lot like Garth the Green, a laughing, bearded, jolly giant with maidens all around him. It's very similar mythology. And uh, so, yeah, there you go. I just want to point out that if indeed the butterflies do something that kills other people that come to Noth, that's another example of evolution at work because these people have adapted oh, yeah. to whatever is whatever chemical or whatever is happening. They have adapted to it so it doesn't hurt them anymore. So it's just another example of George R. R. Martin uh, inserting evolution into this whole thing. That is a great point. All right, so I guess at this point, and we're going to move on to the giants of Westeros, who lived side by side with the children of the forest. Not quite that large, and they don't live in the sky, and you don't have to climb up a beanstalk to get to them. I am the Dread Pirate Roberts! (laughs) Yeah, about like that, about like that. Soon you will not be here. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Andre the Giant. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. All right. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, giants are generally like 14 feet tall, 10 feet tall, something like that. They're really, really fucking strong, and they're covered by hair. They're covered in hair. That kind of makes them a little bit different from the way giants are are typically depicted, because these are more like Sasquatches. They're more like really big Sasquatches. Yeah, that's that's totally what I think George was thinking about, Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. And we know that they are intelligent. They're smart because they buried or dead. And that that is that is not something that's found amongst you know animals. Animals don't really do that. If I'm I'm not aware of any animals that have a death ritual other than you know maybe some primate species. One of the very first things that uh, you know conscious mankind did in our evolution is make make basic tools 
and, you know, have funeral rites. So that's kind of where they are on the evolutionary scale is they're, they're the lowest of all the humanoids, I would say. And it's an interesting take on giants because, you know, you, if you have creatures that big and strong, they could be a real menace. But the reason why they're not is because they're basically docile and they're hermit-like and they don't tend to organize in large societies. So it's a pretty interesting take on giants, I thought. Absolutely. I put forth that giants, the children, and human are all just different evolutionary paths that were taken. I think that the giants evolved one way, the children evolved another way, and mankind evolved a different way. And I think that's where a lot of the uh, non-human species that we're going to talk about come from. Like Because if, if we know that George R. Martin understands evolution, and according to the theory of evolution, at one, we all... Every animal on the face of this planet shares a common ancestor. So at one point, they all came from one place. Yeah, I was going to say it, it has to be that way, really, when you consider evolution. I mean, all the humanoid creatures originally had some sort of common ancestor. It's just a matter of how recent that common ancestor was. Uh, and if the giants can breed with humans, as is strongly suggested, uh, although it would have to be a human male and a giant female, as Tormund says, because the other way around just wouldn't work. And uh, we'll just say that. And so if they can interbreed to some extent, that means, yeah, that means they're related species. And they're closely related. If, we, if they can interbreed, they're closely related. Yeah. Definitely. I, I think that humans, giants, and children are very closely related. Yep. I'd have to agree. I'd, you could say that the, the common ancestor must not be too far in the past because we know that, um, well, let's think about it. So we know that humans could mate with Neanderthals and they were definitely a, a different, uh, not a different species, but a different genus, right? Is that is that how you'd say it? Something like that. Okay. So yeah, somebody can correct us uh, on, on yeah. YouTube. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is that uh, we know that, uh, you know, modern humans interbred with Neanderthals and with the Denisovans in Eastern Asia, and so this is the kind of thing that I think George is basically recreating here, whereas you've got this branching of the humanoid family, but they occasionally circle back and, and interbreed. So, But in the world of Ice and Fire, we also learn about a taller variety of hairy men that used to exist in northern Essos that were basically extinguished by the ancient Andals. And the Jogwin. There's a lot of giants and, and... Well, okay, so you just made an interesting point. If... The Jogwin are called stone giants, and they're in the northern reaches of the Bones Mountains. So it's and that's not far from Ib at all. So it's possible that just what I'm saying that the the taller hairy men did indeed interbreed with the giants that lived on Essos, and that the Ibanes descend from them. All right. So in Essos, there's all types of weird stuff, and I think LML grabbed some quotes about some of the creatures that are said to live there. That's right. The freak show rolls on as we go east and east and east of the bones and into far eastern Essos. And the world of ice and fire tells us of the lands that lie beyond the five forts, we know even less. Legends and lies and travelers' tales are all that ever reach us of these far places. We hear of cities where the men soar like eagles on leathern wings, of towns made of bones of a race of bloodless men who dwell between the deep valley called the Dry Deep and the mountains. Whispers reach us of the gray waste and its cannibal sands, of the shrikes who live there, half-human creatures with green-scaled skin and venomous bites. Are these truly lizard men, 
or, more likely, men clad in the skins of lizards? Or are they no more than fables, the grumpkins and snarks of the eastern deserts? And even the Shrike supposedly live in terror of Kadath in the Grey Waste, a city said to be older than time, where unspeakable rites are performed to slake the hunger of mad gods. Does such a city exist? If so, what is its nature? On such matters, even Lamas Longstrider is silent. Perhaps the priest of Yiti know, but if so, these are not truths they care to share with so us. So this is like one of those throwaway paragraphs at the end of the World of Ice and Fire where they're just telling you, oh, yeah, you know, here, there be dragons or whatever. But specifically, though, as we come through this paragraph of madness, we find therianthropes. Men that soar like eagles on leathern wings. That's a human-animal hybrid. Then we have bloodless men. That's not clear what those are. But then the shrikes seem to have uh, scaled skin and venomous bites. So they're like lizard men. And then we have, um, let's see. Okay, so just I guess those, just those two, they clearly sound like therianthropes. Uh, but then we go over to Sothorios. And we find, it says that the Sothorii are big-boned creatures, massively muscled with long arms, sloped foreheads, huge square teeth, heavy jaws, and coarse black hair. Their broad, flat noses suggest snouts, and their thick skins are brindled in patterns of brown and white that seem more hog-like than human. Sothorii women cannot breed with any save their own males. When mated with men from Essos or Westeros, they bring forth only stillbirths. Many hideously malformed. And I just want to point out that there is a name for when a group of animals becomes different enough, usually due to genetic isolation, um, to not be able to breed together, and it's called speciation. And so that is just another example of George R. R. Martin playing with the idea of evolution. But continue. So, well, the only other part, it just says... You know, uh, these are the brindled men that they are referred to a few times. And it says that they've learned to speak the trade talk... Uh, but the Giscari consider them too slow of wit to make good slaves, but they're good fighters. So you see them in the fighting pits and marines sometimes. And uh, they worship dark gods with obscene rites, blah, blah, blah. They're cannibals, ghouls, they eat the dead, blah, blah, blah. Yada, blah. yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see, and then it says, some say there were other races here once, and this is in the jungles of Sothorios are talking about, forgotten peoples destroyed, devoured, or driven out by the brindled men. Tales of lizard men, so that's again, that's another sighting of lizard men. Lost cities and eyeless cave dwellers are commonplace. No proof exists for any of these. Eyeless cave dwellers. Another example of evolution. I'm just saying. Like when creatures, when organisms live in complete darkness, they lose their eyesight. We look in caves and we see all sorts of blind fish that swim in streams because they never see the light of day. They don't need eyesight. If you yep. don't need eyesight, if you're living in a cave completely, yeah, they might probably use echolocation, or they just have big old ears and they can smell really well. That's all totally possible. So, is there any more here? That's kind of the roundup of like just random weird animals. You got the winged men, the lizard men, the brindled men, um, and so. All of that sort of points to the idea that you can have human-animal hybrids. And George gives us the most clear evidence of that very thing 
in The World of Ice and Fire when he's talking about Gagossos. And it says, The largest of the basilisks is the Isle of Tears, where steep-sided valleys and black bogs hide amongst rugged flint hills and twisted windswept rock. On its southern coast stand the broken ruins of a city. Founded by the old empire of Gis, it was known as Gorgai for close on two centuries or perhaps four. There is some dispute until the dragon lords of Valyria captured it during the Third Giscari War and renamed it Gogassos. By any name, it was an evil place. The dragon lords sent their worst criminals to the Isle of Tears to live out their lives in hard labor. In the dungeons of Gogassos, torturers devised new torments. In the flesh pits, blood sorcery of the darkest sort was practiced, as beasts were mated to slave women to bring forth twisted, half-human children. So we've got Valerian sorcerers creating human-animal hybrids, like flat out. And another important thing is that this is also a hint to how, perhaps, the blood of the dragon got into the Targaryen genome, right? And it had to be through one of these strange blood rituals or spells or practices that involve these animal-human hybrids. And, and I think the evidence for that is in the multiple lizard baby stillbirths that we see from Magor and from Daenerys and from uh, Rhaenyra and the Princess and the Queen. And I believe there's one or two others. Uh, so it's just a genetic remnant that's left over from that initial event, that initial act of blood sorcery, yeah, so, which was taught to them by people of the shadow. But we'll and I, and I, I think this is eventually going to lead... We're going to talk about the commonality of magic, too. But I really suspect that the blood of the dragon is kind of like a mutated green seer magic. Like you take green seer magic and then you do some messed up blood ritual stuff like we're talking about here on Gagasos involving, you know, actual blood of the dragon. And you, you know, I mean, Danny has a kind of psychic bond with Drogon, even if it's not nearly as explicit as a skin changer bond. You know, Drogon screams when Danny orgasms. You know, Drogon uh, gets angry when Danny's angry and kind of comes to her rescue when when he when she really needs her or needs him. And so I think as I'm really curious to see how far George takes that in the oncoming books, Danny and Drogon's bond. What do you think about that? The funny thing is, I talked about this in my most recent video. Yes, you actually. did. That's right. And I think there is something similar going on between the Targaryen bond with dragons and warging, except I don't think the Targaryen bond is as direct. I certainly think that part of the process of hatching a dragon is the incubation period with someone with Valyrian blood, because it is said that Targaryen children would sleep with their dragon eggs, right? And yeah, and I think that's part of the bonding ritual, and I think that's part of the ritual that helps or that facilitates the hatching of them. And it's also said in Son Sons of the Dragon that Aenys Targaryen was stronger after he was in the presence of his dragon. So that's more evidence of that bond and that connection. But obviously, like I said, it's not as direct as warging or skin changing because Danny can she can't actually fully control her dragons to the extent that Bran can control Summer or that even perhaps Jon Snow can control Ghost. And that may be subject to change, but right now... That's not the way it works, so I totally agree with you there. Cool. Well, I'm glad we agree on that. Uh, but I guess, so the larger point for our overarching topic is simply that, 
human-animal hybrids are a thing. They might be something that happened naturally through evolution, and they also can be created through blood magic. Uh, so that's that opens up quite a lot of possibilities. So well, probably the most common human-animal hybrid that we see in the series, besides the children of the forest, obviously, would be fish people, the deep ones, the squishers, the merlings, the selkies. Call them what you want, right? <laughs> so in a previous A Song of Ice and Fire theory video I did, I talked about the deep ones and their potential role in building the five forts because we know of Toad Isle and the Black oily stone and we know of the base of Hightower which is made of fused stone and I know you have some things to say about the differences between fused stone and that black oily stone but the point is that uh, the differences even in the Song of Ice and Fire universe seem to be confused because we have Maester Therion pointing to the base at Hightower and saying that looks a lot like the oily black stone of the sea stone chair which we can assume was left by the deep ones so I have done a theory that suggested that the Deep Ones could potentially live in the Bleeding Sea, uh, which is where the Five Forts are, and that they helped uh, the Far East erect the Five Forts. And then there is, of course, the city Kadath in the Grey Waste, which is another Lovecraft reference like the Deep Ones. It's a, In Lovecraft, it's a city where the Great Old Ones live, and we know that the Deep Ones at least worship a couple of the... Great okay. old ones in Lovecraft. So that was going to be my question is what's because you know more about Lovecraft than me. What's the specific deep ones, old ones relation? So I know the old ones are like sort of demigods or godlike beings that are above mankind. Um, and whereas deep ones are literally fishy humanoids. But you're saying some of the deep ones worship a few of the old ones. Yeah, they certain ones. They worship they worship Dagon or Dagon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And also Mother Hydra, and depending on who you ask, Cthulhu as well. But I know you have a different take on Fused Stone versus the Oily Black Stone, so I want to go ahead and let you have a chance to explain that to the people that are listening. So if the idea is that Fused Black Stone specifically is a Valerian sorcerer using a dragon to melt stone and then either them or a different Valyrian sorcerer using magic to shape that molten stone in place and make a wall out of it or a castle or a dragon sitting on top of the castle wall or a Valyrian road or the walls of Atlantis or Dragonstone. All those things are fused stone. So that's, that's how you do it. You use a dragon. You have to use sorcery. So only dragon lords can make fused stone. But then we have the oily black stone, which is always... It never appears in the same form as the fused black stone. Like, for example, the sea stone chair is oily black stone. It's a big hunk that's carved. Uh, the toad's, toad stone is the same thing. It's a lot bigger. It's 40 feet tall, but it appears to be one big chunk of rock uh, that is carved. And so the way that they could be related, and this is probably, I think, where, what you think about it, is that the greasy black stone could simply be vitrified, meaning it was burned with fire, but it wasn't intentionally shaped. And so it, it looks like it was just scalded a sense. And if you've ever seen vitrified stone, it has that oily, greasy sheen to it. It looks all lumpy and stuff. So, okay. So you were talking about Dagon and Kadath, and you were saying that 
Kadath is a is an old one's place, and so perhaps the Bleeding Sea uh, is a place where deep ones lived. And because you're looking at who could have built the five forts, so the five forts are fused stone as opposed to oily stone. Um, they're very clearly said to be fused stone. So to me, that says dragon lords. The only ones that can build fused stone would be dragon lords. And since we both believe in the idea that the original dragon lords came from a shy. To me, that's the obvious answer. We're told that the Great Empire of the Dawn built the Five Forts, and I've got a very elaborate theory about the Great Empire of the Dawn simply being another name for the ancient people who lived and built in Ashai. So to me, it's pretty, it's pretty sound that the, that the people from Ashai built the Five Forts. All right, so really good stuff, man. But to get back to the Deep Ones, I guess we can talk about evidence of human and deep one interbreeding we looked this up before and george r. r martin did confirm in an interview that the mark of burrell is webbed hands and feet and only some of them have it and it's something that's left over genetically so there's evidence of some interbreeding there and then we've also got the people of toad isle who are strangely fish-like they've got webbed hands and feet and they worship the black oily toad uh, that's said to be left by their ancestors, which are obviously the Deep Ones. And, of course, uh, House Burrell are islanders. So, obviously, that's how they got the Deep Ones' blood, because they live on... And uh, they're islanders, just like the people of Toad Isle. So there seems to be a connection Then here. we've also got a very similar report from the Thousand Islands, and it says, Still farther east lie the so-called Thousand Islands, believed by some to be the last remnants of a drowned kingdom whose towns and towers were submerged beneath the rising tides many thousands of years ago. Only the boldest or the most desperate mariners ever make landfall here, for the people of these islands, though few in number, are a queer folk, inimical to strangers, a hairless people with green-tinged skin who file the teeth of their females into sharp points and slice the foreskins from the members of their males. Isn't that just circumcision? <laughs> Seems like it. Maybe George R. R. Martin is just against circumcision and is making some kind of political <laughs> point. <laughs> uh, let's see. So they speak no known tongue and are said to sacrifice sailors to their squanimous fish-headed gods, likenesses of whom rise from their stony shores, visible only when the tide recedes. Though surrounded by water on all sides, these islanders fear the sea so much they will not set foot in the water even under threat of death. So the people are fish-like, but they're terrified of the sea and they worship gods that are like fish. I would assume they worship those gods in terror. And what we've got here are people that have bred with or been raped by, more likely, the deep ones. And so they're fish-like, but they're basically terrified of the deep ones because, well, they come ashore and like rape and kill. So that's basically what you've got. It's very, very Lovecraft, right? That's exactly what the Deep Ones would do. Uh, um, but yeah, I want to take a little bit of time and talk about Patchface as well. Because the story is that when Patchface drowned, when he went under, that he was saved by Merling. And that in exchange for his seed, she gave him his life back. She taught him to breathe underwater. And that was the reason that he was saved. Because the guy finds him, I forget his name, but he finds him on the shore and he's dead. He sees him and he's dead. And then all of a sudden he coughs up the water in his life. But ever since then, he 
He's broken. And I, I kind of saw a parallel between this and the story of the Night's King a little bit because the Night's King gave the Night Queen his seed in exchange for his soul. So the idea was, would be that Patchface was kind of doing the bidding of the Deep Ones or the Drowned God, who would be the God that they worshipped. If the Drowned Gods exist in A Song of Ice and Fire, they worship the Drowned God, which is obviously Lovecraftian. I've talked about it so much that I'm not even going to say it again. So here's the quote about that. It says, no one ever explained those two days the fool had been lost in the sea. The fisher folk like to say a mermaid had taught him to breathe water in return for his seed. Patchface himself had said nothing. The witty, clever lad that Lord Stephen had written of never reached Storm's End. The boy they found was someone else, broken in body and mind, hardly capable of speech, much less of wit. Yet his fool's face left no doubt who he was. It was the fashion of the free city of Volantis to tattoo the faces of slaves and servants. From neck to scalp, the boy's skin had been patterned in squares of red and green motley. Um, And the thing about this that reminds you of the others is what you said when they actually found the body. It says, the boy washed up on the third day. Master Crescent had come down with the rest to help put names to the dead. When they found the fool, he was naked, his skin white and wrinkled and powdered with with wet sand. Crescent had thought him another corpse when Jami grabbed his ankles to drag him off to the burial wagon. The boy coughed water and sat up. To his dying day, Jami had sworn that Patchface's flesh was clammy cold. So it's like he came... Yeah, so he came out cold. And uh, that reminds me of the the Grey Kiss. And that would be in reference to the Shrouded Lord... So when we talk about Patchface, I think what's cool about him is that he seems insane, but really there is evidence of deeper understanding. Well, yeah, I mean, he's deranged, but he has glimpses of insight. So he, he has a hold of certain very key truths. But it's almost like in, you know, again, in the Lovecraftian sense, glimpsing those truths has warped his mind. And so, yeah, exactly. And that's 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 the sense in which he's broken, I think. No doubt if in if, if if this was a Lovecraft story and this boy saw the face of the drowned god, he would go insane. That is the most Lovecraftian thing that I've ever so, heard. So check this out. This is what it reminds me of. This is from okay, so this is from a dance with dragons, and this is uh Halden Halfmaester talking to Tyrion. It says, What a droll little fellow you are, Yolo. They say the Shrouded Lord will grant a boon to any man who can make him laugh. Perhaps his gray grace will choose you to ornament his stony court. Uh, Duck glanced at his companion uneasily. It's not good to jape of that one. Not when we're so near the Roin. He hears. Um, and then it says, The Prince of Sorrows does not bestow his gray kiss lightly. His gray kiss. The thought made his flesh crawl. Tyrion, uh, death had lost its terror for Tyrion Lannister, but grayscale was another matter. The Shrouded Lord is just a legend, he told himself, no more real than the ghost of Land the Clever that some claim haunts Casterly Rock. Even so, he held his tongue. See, the dead do not rise, insisted, uh, insisted Holden Halfmaster, and no man lives a thousand years. Yes, there is a Shrouded Lord. There have been a score of them. When one dies, another takes his place. This one is a corsair from the Basilisk Isles, who believed the Roin would offer richer pickings than the Summer Sea. I have heard that too, said Duck, but there's another tale I like better. That one says he's not like the other stone men, that he started as a statue till a gray woman came out of the fog and kissed him with lips as cold as ice. Now, what does that remind me of? 
That's the, what I was looking for. It's not the shrouded Lord, but it's the origin of the shrouded Lord, where he was a statue that was kissed by a woman with lips as cold as ice, who reminds you of Night's Queen. So all of this underwater stuff definitely might have something to do with the others in sort of a more like symbolic kind of sense. I think the overarching point of everything we're saying is people have sex with fish. It happened, people. And, and Patchface probably had sex with a fish, too. That's right. Somehow. Don't ask how it works. Don't ask. But it happens. <laughs> <laughs> we're, not here to, we're not here to draw you an anatomy picture uh, or anything like that, but uh, it happens somehow. It might be through magic or evolution or, you know. Well, that's the whole point is that, you know, this is, this is the very, like, the periphery of A Song of Ice and Fire here. This is the stuff around the margins. And it's meant to not be solvable completely. We're just sort of showing you. What he's doing is he's dropping you very small hints and he's using references to other mythology like that of the Deep Ones and, you know, Dagon, the Sumerian fish god, to sort of build on all of that mythology and by referencing it. So he only has these few lines about fish people, but you can sort of see what he's thinking of and he's he's basically telling you, like, you know, not when dinosaurs ruled the earth, but when deep ones ruled the earth that was near the sea. People will be <laughs> discussing this for years in the same way that people still discuss J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, because there's so much that's there to talk about. And it's never going to be explained. I don't think that you should expect there to be a moment where the deep ones show up. And and then and then the green men show up and then everybody just shows up and they all have a big fight and then the lizard people come and then you got the winged men flying around. I don't. That's not going to happen. Uh, it, no, it's just, for the most part. No. Yeah, it's just this is this is like you said. It's it's okay. Well, so let me ask you, what does dead things in the water mean? Oh, dead things in the water. Because um, that's the one that gives you hope, right? Yeah, it does. The deep ones. I mean, I mean. See, I, I thought Dead Things in the Water could be... I just mentioned Tolkien, but I thought that it could be a reference to Tolkien, the dead Martius. But I'm, Yes, well, it could be. Yeah. But, I mean, I could see it being maybe the Deep Ones, because we don't know if the Deep Ones can be affected by the others. So, but they could be. And they could be the... Because we've never seen, uh, you know, whites or others get wet. Like, we don't... You know, it's the great the great debate of can the others just walk around the wall by waiting, you know, waiting uh, by at Eastwatch, just sort of waiting into the ocean. Uh, it would be very anticlimactic if they did that. Right? Certainly. <clears throat> so we have to assume they can't unless they freeze over the ocean. Yeah, I don't think they can. I think I think it's something like they ha it has to be through the wall. Right. Yeah, totally. So uh, so I guess the point is uh, the dead things in the water. It could be like whited mermaids, like those ones we talk about in the North Sea that have black tails or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, or it could just be like a, a white shark, like a whited shark. Oh you know, I mean, we've got polar bears that are whited. So animals. maybe it's just like sharks. Just and like stuff. Yeah. animals. Are, yeah, I, I totally see that. I mean, there was already a bear, so why not a freaking shark? Seals, motherfucker. Got white at seals. It's like how to make the ocean more terrifying. It's like it's bad enough that there's like all sorts of sharks and eels and stingrays and jellyfish. Let's have some whited sharks. That's good. <laughs> they tell of pale blue mist that move across the water. Mist so cold that any ship they pass over is frozen instantly. 
of drowned spirits who rise at night to drag the living down into the gray, green depths, of mermaids, pale of flesh with black-scaled tails, far more malign than their sisters to the south. The point is the drowned spirits who rise to drag men's to the depths. So that's where I was thinking... That that was where I kind of thought that uh, George R. Martin might have been referencing the dead marshes. Well, yeah, so... In Tokyo. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Well, okay, I thought you were making this point to say that the dead things in the water might be these mermaids, um, which also kind of works because if you think about it, these mermaids live in the friggin' shivering sea where the water is so cold it freezes over. I mean, this is like the equivalent of the lands of always winter, but just in the water. So if there's mermaids that live in that environment, they could be undead or related to the others or some sort of really, I mean, it could just be evolution and they live in the cold lands. Uh, They're but ice mermaids. When you say pale skin and then the black scaled tails, it really sounds like whites kind of, I don't know. Yeah, it does. <clears throat> It kind of does. Hard to say, but yeah, dead things in the water. That's one of those lines where it's like, yeah, a little bit of follow-up, please. Uh, George, exactly. I'd like to ask you a question about dead things in the water. Anything you have to say about that? <laughs> like, dude, you just can't say that and then kill the main character and then end the book. Like, what the okay, hell, people, dude? Okay, people, show's over. Go on. Nothing more to see here. Exactly. There's also some random myths like... Uh, I think the people on Oakenshield Island have a myth about driving off the Selkies. And House Valerion supposedly uh, took that island from the Merlin King, and they actually bartered with him, and they now sit in his Driftwood Throne, which is a weird combination of Weirwood Throne and Driftwood Crown from Ironborn uh, you know, mythology. So there's, there's some other scattered legends about these fish people, um, which by themselves would just seem like uh, folk tales or whatever, but given that we know fish people exist, it's actually possible that indeed they had to kill the Selkies before they could live peacefully on this island. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at, okay, we can talk about this for a second. If you look at real world legends of mermaids, they're not exactly always depicted as friendly creatures. I mean, they sing and oh, they no. lure men to their deaths, they drag you down to the depths and like eat you. Yes. Like they're not nice. I mean, I'm, we're. I mean, I feel like we've been influenced by the Disney version of mermaids, right? I mean, if, mm-hmm. even if you look at that original book, it's not the Disney version at all. And I, no. I mean, typically when you come across sirens or mermaids, they're not they're not good creatures. They're mischievous and they will kill you. So yeah, I listened to um, a great uh, podcast about the folklore behind selkies and mermaids and stuff. And uh, it was very enlightening. And yeah, all the roots of these stories, it's very much like a forbidden love story. Like even when it's benevolent, at the very best, it's, some, it's like this doomed relationship where if the mermaid comes on land to be with her love, she ends up dying or withering or whatever. Or if the man tries to go down into the water, then he can't survive either. So that's kind of the inherent tension. It's a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet vibe that underlies all that stuff. And then, of course, there are many versions of it where it's more malevolent, where the mermaid is abducted and stolen uh, from the water. There's myths of the Selkies 
where these mermaids come ashore and they take off their fish skin for like a night and like somebody steals their fish skin so they can't go back under the water and be at home with their selkie kind. So there's a lot of cool myths about that. And it reminds me of what you were saying about the children of the forest, how you always like to say, well, they're, they shouldn't be trusted. And that's not really like uh, a heretical theory. I mean, the you know, again, you, the recent, there are more friendly elf stories that we are familiar with where we think of elves as these benevolent wood beings, but they're really not. The classic folklore, the elves are simply beautiful and strange, but they're often cruel and they have different values than humankind does. They're more loyal to nature than they are to humans. So any sort of forest spirit can turn very mean if you trespass or harm their wood or kill their animals or things like that. So elves shouldn't be trusted in general. No. I mean, I think when it comes to these types of creatures, I feel like they're beautiful because nature is beautiful and they're cruel because nature is cruel. I, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like that's the whole point. Kind of. Yes, yeah. they're personifications of nature, and they're like the teeth of nature. Absolutely. And this is why I love your video about the others. The others are, they are icy she, not just in the visual sense, which is what that quote from George, he's talking about how they look, and he says, oh, they're like icy she, but they're actually like icy, icy she in a, in a thematic sense, because they are very possibly the vengeance of the weirwoods and the vengeance of the children of the forest or some of the children of the forest or certain green seers or however that works out. But they're coming to kill you because you violated nature. That is the underlying idea. Well, it's, it's kind of like how cold uh, is, is often like put beside the word bitter, like the bitter cold. They are the bitterness mm. of nature. It's coming back to bite you in the ass. So, yeah. Hmm. So that, so, yeah. That can kind of go alongside that. So let's move on to the legendary others from the land of always winter. The language of the of the others is said to be like ice cracking. And I know you've talked about this. And then the language of the children of the forest is like a babbling brook. So if you freeze a babbling brook, you have ice and cracking ice. So... It's the same kind of idea. Like their language is the language of nature. The ice, the others just have the icy version. So that tells you that they're similar. Uh, and you know they're they're elegant, beautiful, like nature, and human. Um, they're obviously intelligent, and the others really have competed with humans better than any other uh, magical creature in a song of ice and fire. They nearly wiped out humanity, at least on the continent of Westeros at one point in time. They swept over cities and kingdoms, eternal night, so they really came in and screwed stuff up. All they need is to hide that pesky sun, and they can get out and do their thing. So that's that's one thing that I often wonder. Like, uh, could, it, could, do, could, could the others, like, live in Dorne? Like, what would it take for Dorne? During the long night, they could. During the long night, you think? Well, Yeah, because it would just be a cold, dark desert. It'd be, it'd be like the Grey Waste frozen yeah. desert interesting that's right by the way i don't know if i've ever mentioned this to you but you have that theory about you know if you keep following the gray waste off the map and mosavi it'll curl back around up to the north and go to the north pole and there's a northern passage or maybe there was at some point mm -hmm. uh that would lead you to the lands of always winter yeah um in game of thrones when cersei when ned challenges cersei in the throne room and holds up the letter 
And she tears up the letter and she tells him, go back to your gray waste that you call home. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is really interesting because it's comparing the North to the gray waste pretty directly. It is. I mean, because it could just be like similar wording by, you know, it's a phrase he likes using maybe or whatever. But also look at the way the far North is described in Brand's vision. The dead plains where nothing grew or lived. That sounds an awful lot like the gray waste. And I know George has said that perhaps they're, that they're not connected, but my idea was that perhaps at one point there were, and it perhaps during the long night, during like a severe winter, maybe the non-connected parts could freeze over and then... Well, it's not even that the non-connected parts freeze over, but when the ice caps grow, sea level uh, falls and then more land is exposed. Um, and in general, you can see that the sea levels are rising. And the Thousand Islands are actually evidence of that. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. So now the thing about the others, they're similar to the children of the forest, right? But they're very tall. And they're more kind of like people. So they're not the children of the forest. But, and we're talking about book canon here. Uh, we, we know that it's not as simple as show canon either, where you just took a human and you stabbed him with dragon glass or did some other magical thing to him and transformed him into an other. And similarly, like what we see with Craster's babies, like, you know, it, it raises some questions. Like we, we know that somehow in the books, Craster's babies are turned into white walkers or they're, they're taken and used to make white walkers. But we don't, there's this big missing step it's kind of like the underpants gnomes, you know, step one and step three. But like, what's what's phase two, right? Steel underpants is phase one. It's phase three, profits. But what's phase two? It's like we take a we we take a craster baby and we end up with a white walker. But like, do okay. So in the show, they they touches they touch the baby. The baby's eye turns blue. So then what? Do they have a nursery? Do they do they wait fifteen years for the baby to grow up and reach you know? Adulthood is there like a angsty teenage White Walker phase? Like to to me that goes against <laughs> Martin the fact that he just touches it because it's like Martin makes a point that when you do magic it has a cost and it's not just like an easy task that you can perform. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Maybe the Night King is just exceptionally powerful. I mean, I can't talk about what happens on the show. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing, but I feel I feel like that it it, it would have to involve some sort of ritual that it would it would take time to perform it if it was indeed turning the baby itself into another. But anyway, it would require some sort of ritual, I think. To me, it seems like more, it's more likely they use that baby's life force to create like an ice golem. You know what I mean? Like they, that baby ends up being killed, but their life force and spirit goes into the creature they create. And, 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 and some part of the weirwood tree, I think, also becomes the other because there's so many clues about the others being from the trees. And so to me, they're like, you know, it's like kind of like a dryad is like a tree spirit. It's a separate entity, but it's linked to the tree. It's really just a manifestation of the tree's consciousness. The others are, are that in some sense, but they also need a baby. And originally it was Knight's King and Knight's Queen, in my opinion. Uh, that's what I've been writing about in my last few podcasts that it was Knight's King and Knight's Queen who lived during the long night 
and we're creating the first others, not sacrificing to already existent others. And we don't need to get into that whole theory. Just that's my theory. So the point being like, you need babies. You know, Craster is mimicking the Knight's King and Knight's Queen by giving babies to be to somehow fuel the other making process. But the whole idea of turning it about an actual baby and then just waiting for it to grow up seems stupid. So to me, it's more like sacrificing a baby to wake a dragon. It's probably the, the icy version of that. And yeah, because what are yeah, they like ahead. bottle feeding the White Walker babies? And yeah, yeah, it what? doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Frozen icy iced milk and cold weirwood paste. I don't know. So, but but we're talking about the book canon, and so in book canon, it's very likely that it's more complex because they simplify everything related to magic. So I'm thinking it's something more like that. They they harvest some bit of the weirwood intelligence, some part of the weirwood net itself takes corporeal form, and they use the baby's spirit, and somehow an ice golem is made. And uh, I believe we're going to get an answer for that. I have to think. So I think so, yeah. Because he's setting up the mystery of Craster's babies for a reason. So I, he wouldn't do it if he wasn't going to explain it. And he does, he, he does say that more about the nature of these others will be revealed. We know that their bane, their greatest bane is, quote-unquote, frozen fire or dragon glass. Um, but the question really is, Why? And I think this relates back to the children of the forest, obviously, who hunted with dragon glass. That's a big hint that this weapon that the children hunted with is the ultimate bane of the White Walkers. So let's think about this. If there's some part of the tree spirit that combines with this baby sacrifice to make the White Walker, well, what are those tree spirits? Those are mostly children of the forest green seers in there, right? So, in a sense, the others are children of the forest because they're basically like recycled green seer intelligence, according to this theory, combined with the life force of this sacrificed baby. I, I think that's where my thinking is heading, is, is something along those lines. So, that explains why the others, their language is like children of the forest language. You know what I mean? Because if it, this is what I was trying to get at. The show tells, shows us a human being turned into Night's King. But if that was the case, they wouldn't have these parallels with the children of the forest. And if they, But if they were made out of recycled green seer spirits in some sense, then that makes sense for them to manifest more like elves. And so let me pull this quote. Um, go ahead and give your thoughts on that, and I'll pull some more quotes. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with most of that. I, I totally think that... I mean, there is a very clear connection between the others and the Children of the Forest, right? You definitely get the sense that the children were kind of the precursor to the others, that they were there before, and then the others came. They were born of them in some, in some way. And I think that theory explains it, too. And, of course, there are other theories as well, but I think yours explains it pretty well. And, and this is based on a couple of clever readings of the text, okay? So on the day, a couple of seasons ago, when they had that episode where they showed uh, the children of the forest creating Night's King with a dragon glass, I published my most popular Reddit post ever. It was based on just three quotes, mainly. And so one is in A Storm of Swords, and it's when Sam Tarley is trying to get John elected Lord Commander, and he's going back and forth between Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister. And it says, No man would ever call Cotter Pike handsome. 
Though the body under his studied brigantine and rough-spun breeches was lean and hard and wiry strong, his eyes were small and close-set, his nose broken, his widow's peak and sharply, well, as sharply pointed as the head of a spear. The pox had ravaged his face badly, and the beard he'd grown to hide the scars was thin and scraggly. "'Sam the Slayer,' he said by way of greeting. "'Are you sure you stabbed another, and not some child's snow knight?' So there you go, Child Snow Knight. And that phrase is repeated in the Eerie when Sansa is making the snow version of Winterfell. She makes, uh, it says she was making Child Snow Knights, and she's simulating a Knight's Queen role in that scene. So <clears throat> that's used more than once. And then there's the other one. So it says, um, it's when the Northmen were disguised as trees. They were wearing branches and, as camouflage. And it said, The woods were on the move, creeping towards the castle like a slow green tide. She thought back to a tale she had heard as a child about the children of the forest and their battles with the first men when the green seers turned the trees to warriors. So that's a big clue, actually, about the creation of the others right there. Potentially. And, I mean, in, in what other way would you turn a tree into a warrior? I mean, I mean, it, it fits perfectly with your theory about about the... Others being made from green seer, what would you call them? Spirits or just well, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's like a group consciousness, and I know that's one of the things you want to talk about, like a hive mind consciousness. But some bit of it gets sliced off and put back into this ice golem body, and I don't know exactly. It's hard to say what you know. All of the others might might have a hive mind, like they might be sharing one mind together. We, we don't know. I tend to think so. That's definitely what, that's actually, that is what I think. I do think they have a hive mind. It seems like it to me. So it's like, so, um, so it's like a part of level. the weirwood net that's like taken an angry, vengeful form. And this is what one of the major things I think the show got right is depicting Bran confronting the Night's King inside the weirwood net. I absolutely think that this will happen in the books and that the only part of quote knight's king the original knight's king that survives to this day will be inside the weirwood net um and it could be knight's queen for all i know or it's it's hard to even know what kind of shape that consciousness would be but the point is if there's weirwood consciousness animating the others then there's like this other section of the weirwood net than the part brands access so far right yeah, I think it's cool that you mentioned that it could have been the Knight's Queen. Because, um, I mean, in, in paganism, right, in, 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 like, in like a lot of pagan mythologies, you have like the divine feminine force. Sure. Who's like, uh, who's like constantly changing. And it's like a... The original goddess, really. Yeah, it, it, and, it, and it is a vengeful force. Like she will strike back if you, if you hurt her or do her wrong. But it is, a, it is kind of a passive force at the same time. So I, I think it, I think it would be interesting if it was a woman. I don't know. That just struck me as really yeah. There's really a there's a few different um, people that that like that. The great other is is you know a woman. It's the knight you know knight's queen or corpse queen or whatever you call it. Uh, I would like that. I think that would be cool. But um, the point is like there's there's some sort of other intelligence in the weirwood net, and the others are tied to the weirwood net. I I think strongly. And I was going to say, since we're already talking about the Weirwood Nut, I guess we can move on to that. Yes. You know, I put forth the Weirwood Nut as a non-human consciousness. 
And like my justification for this is that if you look at the human brain, it is a complex organ, a complex object that's made up of smaller, less complex parts. So if every werewolf tree in Westeros had even like a modicum of uh, agency or will or intelligence, uh, that number would be multiplied exponentially depending on how many there were. And we know that the werewolves are connected. So when you, when you zoom out and you look at them as a whole, what you really start to what it really starts to look like is a brain. Uh, so it's like it's like an entire sentient thing. It's 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 sentient and it's aware. And I think that it is in communication with the children of the forest. I think so. I think I've always thought of Westeros as a living continent because of the connection of the weirwood roots. And I think George is drawing heavily from the idea of fungus and the idea that mushrooms... uh, Okay, so it's what it is is that tree roots in a forest are connected with each other through the micro-rhizosomes. And these are little fungus that populate the roots, and they become a network of awareness. And it's some trippy-ass shit, I swear to you, this is real. You may have heard this. This this story has gotten around. It's not as obscure a fact as it used to be. Um, But the world's largest organism is some giant forest in uh, some fungus organism in a forest. Is it in California or in the UK? I I believe you're talking about Pando, and it's also known as the Trembling Giant, and it's a colony of fungus in a forest, and it's the largest living organism on Earth. Right. So, And what trees can do with this connection is if one tree is injured or it has a a disease or a pest, the other trees will become aware and they can isolate it and uh, they can prevent. The other trees will start putting out enzymes to repel that given like pest Um, or they can transfer nutrients around in the soil. There's some really interesting things that they do. There's a definitely a, a forest awareness that's connected through tree roots and through fungus. And that is why we see a mushroom on Blood Raven's cheek. When he's sitting there in that cave, it's a really strange kind of detail. It's like, why does Blood Raven have a mushroom on his cheek? Well, I mean, that's it's just showing you, like, this is the mushroom network. It's not just the whole, like, eating the weird paste is like eating psychedelic mushrooms. It's playing on the fungal network that connects the forest. Yeah, and I think that is just, that's another example of evolution, too. I mean, because, I mean, organisms evolve in ways that... Um, keep them alive and keep them and allow them to allow them to sustain themselves so it makes sense that a certain species of tree or or whatever would develop a relationship with um other members of its species in order to maintain the entire species as a whole coral do this i mean we even do this as people we group together in order to survive so it it makes sense that the werewoods kind of would too and we know that they're special trees they live forever um, they're different from other trees in Westeros. Let's just say that. They are different from other trees in Westeros. And in fact, <laughs> there is a More great quote about that. A man must know how to look before he can see, said Lord Brynden. Those were shadows of days past that you saw. You are looking through the eyes of the heart tree in your god's wood. Time is different for a tree than for a man. Sun and soil and water... These are the things a werewood understands, not days and years and centuries. For men, time is a river. We are trapped in its flow, hurtling from past to present, 
always in the same direction. The lives of trees are different. They root and grow and die in one place, and that river does not move them. The oak is the acorn, the ache is the oak, and the werewood. A thousand human years are a moment to a werewood, and through such gates you and I may gaze into the past. Yeah, so <clears throat> the whole idea is like time is a river, but the weirwoods are not moved by the river. They are permanence, and so they can, they can see forward and backwards in time. They exist outside of time. And as we were talking before the episode, <clears throat> this is basically a reference to the word weir, which is part of weirwood. And if you guys know Martin's use of etymology, he likes to combine different influences. So when you see weirwood, it sounds like werewood, like werewolf. And yes, that's, that's part of it. Like W-E-R-E, were, means man. So werewolf is a man-wolf, and a werewood is a man-tree. And obviously it is. It has a face, and its leaves look like hands, and people live inside it. However, weir is also a reference to Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. And <laughs> more importantly, it's also a word that's used to reference something called a fishing weir. And a fishing weir is a wooden structure built across a river like a dam uh, or like a sluice gate, and it's used to fish. It either has a grid that strains the bigger fish out of the river, or people sit on the weir and they fish from it or lower nets from the weir. And so it's called a fishing weir, and it literally sits astride a river and is not moved by the river. And that's exactly how George is describing the weirwoods as like sitting in this river, but like rooted and not moved, not being moved by the river. And we mentioned also before we started this conversation that a weir also kind of means a fish trap, right? Exactly. That's and, exactly. And so it would seem as though the weirwoods on this river of time are there to cap, catch something, mankind perhaps. I mean, it seems like those green seers, because even though they're giving great gifts to the green seers, they're also trapping them and tying them up, literally tying them up with their roots and penetrating them, possibly feeding off of their life force. And of course, they feed off of the blood of the sacrifices. So absolutely, they are trapping intelligence inside of their weirwood net. Yeah, I mean, the traditions of sacrifice before the weirwood trees is well known. There's so much evidence for it. So, Quinn, you've one of your favorite things to talk about is the Lovecraftian influences on the story. And you've made some really cool videos about uh, Shy and about specifically the old ones and the deep ones and all the stuff. And anybody that's a fan of your channel, I'm sure, knows those videos because it's some of the coolest stuff you do. Am I right? Yeah. It's near and dear to your heart. Definitely. So, now, tell, real quick, tell everyone, give us like the 60-second rundown or whatever on the old ones. What are they in Lovecraft? All right. So the great old ones in Lovecraft were the group, the morass of deities, demigods that existed and inhabited the planet Earth long before mankind got here. Um, by the time mankind gets to Earth, they're generally like imprisoned within the Earth or like lost in other dimensions. And for the most part, the other great old ones that live off in the cosmos don't bother mankind. But the point is that the great old ones still exist on Earth, at least some of them do, and that they do have some influence on man, and proximity ha seems to have something to do with this. Like, if you're, like, near a place where an old god sleeps, then you'll be kind of affected by it. 
Hmm. And so, hmm. yeah, that's kind of the rundown. Right, and that's typical of Lovecraft. He seems to be very fascinated with mind control, mind invasion, uh, and you know, greater entities influencing mankind and planning thoughts and all that stuff, right? Absolutely. Definitely, like it said that Cthulhu actually uh, sends out anxiety to just the people of Earth just by simply existing. Like he's nice dreaming guy. and sending out um, all sorts of bad emotions and just to, into the ether. All right. So, okay. So, so now we're going to talk about the old ones. And it basically what, I've, what I'm doing here, guys, is I'm, uh, I told Quinn that I had a little theory, a little surprise theory for him uh, about the old ones. And it's a slightly different take on the old ones than other people have. And basically I'm, I'm throwing it at you, Quinn, because it combines – it's going to lead back to some of your ideas about elves and stuff. So it's going to be pretty fun. So check this out. We're looking at uh, – so we're cruising along through the world of ice and fire, and we come to the Essos material in the back, which was definitely some of my favorite stuff. I'm sure you feel the same way. And we get to the Holy Isle of Lang in the Jade Sea. It's a large, verdant island, which is home to, quote, 10,000 tigers and 10 million monkeys, according to Lomas Longstrider. And that sounds cool. And it's uh, – then we get the slightly weirder reference to spotted humpback apes said to be almost as clever as man – and large apes, uh, hooded apes as large as giants, which, by the way, Quinn, also is another evolutionary tease. Like, oh, he's telling you that there's actually apes that are smarter than any apes that we have on Earth, right? It's the other side of the evolutionary uh, journey there. So in any case, so you're reading about that, and that all sounds cool. And then in only the second paragraph, shit gets super weird. So go ahead and read this first quote. Ling's history goes back almost as far as that of Yi Ti itself, but little and less of it is known west of the Jade Straits. There are queer ruins in the depths of the island's jungle, massive buildings long fallen, so overgrown that rubble rem remains above the surface, but underground. We are told endless labyrinths of tunnels lead to vast chambers, and carved steps descend hundreds of feet into the earth. No man can say who might have built these cities or when. They remain perhaps the only remnant of some vanished people. All right. So that is the kind of shit that you look for in fantasy, right? I mean, if, if you like Quinn's channel, you know, if you like my stuff, then this is the kind of stuff that you're like, whoa, tell me more about that. So then, yeah, totally. And they do. They give us a little bit more. Um, after they, they tell us some more conventional stuff about how Lang was colonized by E.T., and they've got two types of people, the very tall native Langi who live in the south and the shorter Yitish, uh, you know, the people that have bred with Yitish that live in the north. But then they've got this little sidebar that talks, goes back to those runes in the jungle, and it tells us more about the old ones. Legends persist that the old ones still live beneath the jungle of Ling, so many of the warriors that Jahar sent down below the ruins returned mad, or not at all, that the god-emperor finally decreed that the vast underground cities, ruins, should be sealed up and forgotten. Even today it is forbidden to enter such places, under penalty of torture and death. Okay, so it's just gone from like 9 to 10 on the wow, that's cool shit meter. We've got underground cities, people coming back insane, uh, and of course, this is very Lovecraft. 
um, you know, as we've already established. So then there's one other reference to the old ones in the Lang, sing, uh, in the Lang section a bit further on. It goes like this. It was mariners from the Golden Empire who opened Ling to trade. Yet even the island remained a perilous place for outsiders, for the Empress of Ling was known to have congress with the Old Ones, gods who lived deep below the ruined subterranean cities. And from time to time the Old Ones told her to put all the strangers on the island to death. This is known to have happened at least four times in the island's history, if Colloquo Votar's Jade Compendium can be believed. And put me, put me down for uh, believing basically every word of the Jade Compendium. But, uh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so basically this, this got even creepier. Now they, uh, the Old Ones are influencing the God Empress of Lang, who has Congress with them, whatever. In any case, they tell her to just kill all the foreigners. And this, again, this is straight Lovecraft right here. Um, so it's... Apparently, it's a little better these days. There's no more executions now, and we have an independent Lang ruled by a god empress, and the old ones uh, are not mentioned by name anywhere in A Song of Ice and Fire, so they don't seem to be a direct threat. You know, we already established who the old ones are. They're these malignant beings of great power that reside on various locations on Earth, but they're sort of sleeping or hibernating or they're trapped. <clears throat> and this, this, this all fits. So, so far... The old ones seem like a straight reference to Lovecraft, right? But I think that these old ones might be a little more important. And, you know, a lot of the uh, shy stuff, the Church of Starry Wisdom, Bloodstone Emperor stuff, is very inspired by Lovecraft. What George Martin is saying by using all of these Lovecraft ideas is that Love's, Lovecraft's ideas are now in that category. They're the kinds of things that anybody can use and adapt to their own story, just like you would uh, an elf from Tolkien or a goblin or something like that. So what do you think of that? Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, because, I mean, Lovecraft is, is famous enough, and you're always, you're always going to know it's Lovecraft when you see it. But yeah, I, de I definitely think that's what what Martin is doing, and I, I feel like there's not a problem with it. And like I've seen even on my videos, sometimes people will be like, oh, like you're pointing all this, uh, all this stuff. It seems like Martin is copying Lovecraft. And he's not. He's not copying Lovecraft. He's doing exactly what you said. He's just taking an idea that's in the lexicon and just using it. So I, I agree. Exactly. And, and he can make whatever changes he needs. And he can use it, you know, as as he pleases. And and in fact, that was even done uh, when Lovecraft was alive. Uh, he allowed other people to write in his universe and use his general ideas and stuff. So what I think is going on with the old ones is that he's starting with all of this Lovecraftian ideas of them being these these beings that live in underground cities that may or may not still exist. And they reach out with mind control and drive people mad. But he's also doing something else. And... It's going to lead us back to elves. So let's talk about the native Langi people. On the southern third of Ling dwell the descendants of those displaced by the invaders from the Golden Empire. The native Lingi, or the native Lingai, are perhaps the tallest of all the known races of mankind, with many men amongst them reaching seven feet in height, and some as tall as eight, long-legged and slender, with flesh the color of oiled teak. They have large golden eyes and can supposedly see further and better than other men, especially at night. Though formidably tall, the women of the Lingai are famously 
lithe and lovely, of surpassing beauty. I've been saying Lengi, but I don't, I mean, I don't really know. George always says he doesn't care. You pronounce it how you want, but. Who cares? <laughs> I don't know. Lengi, In any case, Lengi. the cool thing here is the large golden eyes. Like we already talked about this. Uh, the fact that the Nathi have large amber eyes is kind of sounds similar to the children of the forest. And the children of the forest obviously have large golden eyes. And the, the exact quote is, uh, and I'll just read the one line from this. It says, her skin was dappled like a doe's beneath a cloak of leaves. Her eyes were queer, large and liquid, green and gold, slitted like a cat's eyes. No one has eyes like that. So large golden eyes, that's the children of the forest eyes. And the Lengi have something similar. So there's another place in A Dance with Dragons where it says that the children of the forest have nut brown skin. So the, the Lengi have skin the color of uh, teak. And you may not have that. You may not know off the top of your head what teak looks like. Maybe if you're into furniture, you do. But it's basically a golden, medium-hued brown. And saying oiled teak would mean that it would be a shade darker than medium. So think of a slightly golden brown, like a South American person or something like that. I don't know. Um, That's approximately the skin tone we're talking about. So it's not that different. Basically what I'm saying is the children of the forest and the Lengi are in the same ballpark of skin tone. And they both have golden eyes. So there's kind of makes you wonder, like, oh, are these, are these cousins? Uh, you know, the, the Lengi's eyes aren't slitted like cat's eyes, but they do have a ton of tiger symbolism around, which could be sort of one of those stealthy symbolic uh, call-outs. Like, for example, Illyrio trades in tiger skins from Lang, and it's the land of 10,000 tigers. So one of the ideas is that a Bloodstone Emperor, after he killed the Amethyst Empress, his sister, he married a tiger woman. And uh, it's possible that Tiger Woman could be none other than a god empress of Lang. And when you think god empress, that's the right person for a god emperor of the Great Empire of the Dawn to marry, right? And there, uh, and it's said that the Great Empire of the Dawn included the Isle of Lang. So my, that's really my best guess, to be honest, is that Tiger Woman is either a Langi woman or a, ch- a child of the forest hybrid person. Or maybe that's the same thing, dun, 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 which is kind of where I'm going with this. So we've already talked about how large eyes are generally found on, you know, nocturnal creatures and people that live in caves. And we found the children living in Bloodraven's cave. And in fact, that's always been the case. So in A Game of Thrones, Maester Lewin tells us about the children of the forest. They were a people dark and beautiful, small of stature, no taller than children even when grown to manhood. They lived in the depths of the wood, in caves and chronics, and secret tree towns. Slight as they were, the children were quick and graceful. So the caves aren't just a place they're hiding now because they're being driven to extinction. They've always lived in caves and hollow hills and grottos and things like that. Uh, So the large eyes are definitely part of their evolution. It's part of their natural sort of deal there. So the other thing that's similar is this physical description, dark and beautiful, slight, quick, and graceful. Compare that to the Langi or the Langai, who are described as slender, lithe, and lovely. And again, with a sort of matching skin tones and eye color. So honestly, if, if the Langi weren't so tall, 
I think everyone who read The World of Ice and Fire would immediately have suspected them of being children of the forest. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. It seems like intentional, just, just based on the descriptions, yeah. The only difference is the height, really. I mean, there are other smaller things, but yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is going on is that this is a cousin race of elves, the, the old ones. I think it's probable that these weird traits of the Lengi, the, the eight-foot height and the golden eyes, they come from interbreeding with the old ones. Because we've just given you a thousand examples of humans interbreeding, not a thousand, but you know, many examples of evidence of humans interbreeding with other creatures. And so what I think is that the old ones are basically some sort of like tall children of the forest elves – and the native Langi interbred with them, and that's why they're tall and they have golden eyes. And so years and years ago, there was some amount of interbreeding between the Langi and the old ones. And so the Langi's evolution has been shaped by that. Now, that's basically a great theory, you know, but it's still, it's like, it's just a theory. It's, it's just kind of spitballing and putting things together and stuff. But there's actually something that supports it a lot more, um, the Ariane chapter of The Winds of Winter that George released early, there's this really interesting passage where Ariane is in the rainwood in the Stormlands, and uh, she sees stone faces. So go ahead and read this one. All at once she found herself in another cavern, five times as big as the last one, surrounded by a forest of stone columns. Damon Sand moved to her side and raised his torch. Look at how that stone's been shaped. Those columns in the wall there, see them? Faces, said Aryan. So many sad eyes staring. This place belonged to the children of the forest. A thousand years ago. I mean, I feel like this is almost a, like kind of a, this the show's version of when Danny and and Jon Snow went into the cave is kind of like the show's version of this perhaps a little bit um i don't know why would they carve faces into stone right so the question is can is it possible for green seers to see out of stone faces i think so that seems that's one possibility implication i mean or it could be something like uh they're not meant to be used but they're carved in imitation of weird faces because this was some sort of holy place and so it's just kind of like your standard sort of symbolic carving, you know, that could be that more mundane answer. Um, some people wondered if maybe these were petrified weirwoods that have turned to stone because it said a forest of stone columns, so it implies them as tree trunks. However, um, they're way underground at this point, and I can't think of a way for trees to be buried in a cavern underground like that. No, it's some weird mechanics there. So I have to think these are carved in the stone. Um, But what's weird is that we just, we never hear about the children of the forest working in stone. And this is one of the things like, well, if the old ones are related to the children of the forest, they're obviously a little different because they're making these stone underground cities. Or maybe they're just all carved in the stone and not actually built because it's all underground. So I guess it's carved. Uh, But we don't see the children of the forest carving stone and then all of a sudden we do that's kind of my point like this whatever wherever they're carving these columns 
the children of the forest appear to carve in stone or somebody that is similar to the children of the forest. If maybe like the old ones came to Westeros, but we'll get to that. So, um, what we've got here. So there's one other tidbit about the children of the forest working with stone. And it has to do with Kat's memory of the legend of storm's end from a clash of Kings. A seventh castle he'd raised, most massive of all. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claim that a small boy told him what he must do. A boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. <laughs> you know, I just think about all of the theories that suggest that Bran is a time traveler and that he is literally Bran the Builder. You know, I think about stuff like this and like lines like this just just add more and more fodder to those ideas because a small boy who taught him how to do it. I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, is that why, is that why yeah, you're laughing? Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Well, the the whole point is that this, this story is wacky. It's like uh, shaping stone with magic would make perfect sense if they were talking about a dragon lord. But children of the forest shaping stone with magic is like nonsensical. Like we've never seen anything like that. I mean, that just breaks the entire consensus wisdom about the children of the forest when i looked at this quote i always thought that it was talking about uh valerians and that this is just mixed up is that children of the forest were involved in some different way and there's some part of storm's end built with fused stone or else it's really the legend of the building of the fused stone at old town that somehow got mixed into the storm's end legend because again this is six eight thousand years ago that kind of thing can absolutely happen um but what if it's not like what if the children of the forest actually do work with stone because again we've got this other evidence of them at least carving uh the stone faces we know they can flint nap because they make dragon glass knives i'm kind of saving the big nugget here the big nugget and and is is has to do with this phrase old ones okay so all of that's well and good so we're looking at, you know, maybe the old ones are elves. Maybe the children of the forest can work in stone. It's hard because we're grasping at the thinnest of straws. These little obscure legends that may or may not be right. We're trying to stitch them together. And you can really get in trouble with this if you're trying to make serious theories. Um, and I think there is something really clever going on. So we've said that the old ones are these race of Lovecraftian beings. And that's true. However... I like to talk a lot about the horned god mythology of European folklore. And this is Sir Nunos, Hearn the Hunter, the Green Man, all the things that influenced Garth the Green and the Sacred Order of Green Men and the Baratheons with their stag antlers on their head and how the wildlings have, you know, the memory of the horned lord and they call a constellation the horned lord. All of that stuff is based on Sir Nunos and the horned god archetype. And that's, again, just pagan Celtic folklore, European folklore. And it's really strong influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. You touched on sort of a different branch of it, talking about the she and the Irish, sort of the Irish mythology. Irish mythology is very much a branching off of this sort of European folklore, the larger body of it. So the thing is, this horned god is also called the Great Old One. So when he talks about the old ones, and I'm telling you that they might be elves, 
it turns out that the old one is already the name of like the prototypical stag man elf guy. I put this together at some point and was like, wait a minute, wait a damn minute. Okay, so check this out. The old ones on Lang, if they're tall elves, they they might be the green men because the sacred order of green men, what do we know about them? Like they're green men, so they sound like elves, and they live on this magic island self-sufficiently, which sounds magical, and they safeguard the weirwoods, so they're tied to the weirwoods, but they're not called children of the forest, and they're not just men. So he talked about the green men a lot in the first book, but he never, like, gave us much clues about what they are. So, I mean, what have you, how do you think of the green men? Uh, I have this vague impression of them as like these magical men that are just kind of hanging out on the Isle of Faces. You know, they kind of live in a way that's similar to the Children of the Forest in a way that elves would kind of live, I suppose. Maybe wearing antlers, like dressed up in leaves and stuff like that. I imagine that they would coexist perfectly with nature in a similar fashion to the Children of the Forest. So yeah, for the most part, very similar to the Children of the Forest, but obviously different and in a few key ways. So Bran says uh, that all the tales agreed the green men had strange magic powers. And Old Nan says the green men ride on elks and that sometimes they have antlers too. And we're also told that sometimes they have green skin. And so basically that's the same description as we're given of Garth the Green, who might have antlers, green skin, magic, he's a god, and all of it's based on the same mythology. So... The cool thing is that George has said we are going to see the Isle of Faces. Did you know that? Yeah, I'll try to look up the SSM and leave it in the comments of the YouTube video. But he has said that before the series is over, we're going to get to see the green men on the Isle of Faces. And it's something that he wrote about a lot in the first couple of books. and sort of went away from it in the last couple. But I think you have to remember, originally he thought he was writing a trilogy when he first wrote the first book. And I think he thought he was going to follow up on all this Green Man stuff a lot sooner. And so we get the Night of the Laughing Tree story, which involves the Green Men, and we get Bran talking about the Green Men. When Cold Hands, uh, when Sam shows up and starts talking about Cold Hands, Bran's like, did he have antlers? Was he riding an elk? Is he a Green Man? So it's like he keeps bringing them up. And he said we're going to see him. So to me, like you said, for example, you said, well, we're not going to ever see the Deep Ones or the Lizard People, and and that's right for the most part. But we do know that we're going to see the Green Men. It might be only a brand vision. You know, it might be a fleeting glimpse, but we're going to see the Green Men. And when we see them, I am telling you, they're going to be tall elves with golden eyes, and they're going to be the old ones. That is my theory. All right, now that is a pretty deep, crazy theory. I'm not saying it's crazy as in it could be it's wrong or anything. I'm just saying it's crazy as in it's wild. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but you so, know, go, go ahead. ahead. You go ahead. You can go ahead and say what you were going to say just then. Well, so if you know my theories, my theories are never just logic like that. I always use double readings of the text, and this first one is from the fourth chapter of A Game of Thrones. It's the first one in Winterfell where Catelyn comes upon Ned in the godswood. For her sake, Ned had built a small sept where she might sing to the seven faces of God. But the blood of the first men still flowed in the veins of the Starks, and his own gods were the old ones, 
The nameless, faceless gods of the green wood they shared with the vanished children of the forest. Dun, dun, dun. Ned prays to the old ones, everybody. There it is. <laughs> so, so there it is. The vanished gods of the green wood, they are the old ones. And this still plays into the Lovecraftian idea of the old ones as gods that are vanished or hibernating and can only influence people psychically. So, again, this is a seamless merging of Lovecraft and European folklore. And this this is the kind of shit that I just love about George Martin, is he never just draws influence from Norse mythology or just from something. He he finds ways to mix this shit all up. Um, you know, in fact, there's one of the old ones whose name is Ig, Y-I-G, Yig. And, of course, Yggdrasil is based on the root word Ig. So he's also playing with that, but that's, I don't want to get too far afield. So check this out. It's, it's not just Ned praying to the old ones. The gate is lost. Donald Noy had closed and chained it, but it was there for the taking. The iron bars glimmering red with reflected firelight. The cold black tunnel behind. No one had fallen back to defend it. The only safety was on top of the wall, 700 feet up, the crooked wooden stairs. What gods do you pray to? John asked Satin. The seven, the boy from Old Town said. Pray then, John told him. Pray to your new gods, and I'll pray to my old ones. It all turned here. <laughs> yeah. So, there's a lot of these. Oh, yeah. Indeed. There's a lot of them. And some of them are really, really flagrant. Um, so I'm, I'm going to write a full write-up, basically taking every single quote that has this old one's double entendre that seems meaningful. You can see just from those two, like, the <laughs> some pretty clever shit going on. Well, yeah, I mean, well, you know, that's Martin for you. That is definitely Martin. <laughs> I, I know. I, I was, I just, I was so excited about making you read that. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Because I know you love the old ones. I do. And there do. they are, right in right in the first, you know, right from the get-go, right in the godswood where they should be. Absolutely. So so the, the other one that's my favorite is uh, the wolf's den in White Harbor. Davos Seaworth could sense that something was awry this morning. He woke to the sound of voices and crept to the door of his cell. But the wood was too thick and he could not make out the words. Dawn had come, but not the porridge Garth brought him every morn to break his fast. That made him anxious. All the days were much the same inside the wolf's den, and any change was usually for the worse. This may be the day I die. Garth may be sitting with a whetstone even now to put an edge on Lady Lou. The young knight had not forgotten Wyman Manderley's last words to him. Take this creature to the wolf's den and cut off his head and hands. The fat lord had commanded, I shall not be able to eat a bite until I see this smuggler's head upon a spike with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. Every night Davos went to sleep with those words in his head, and every morn he woke to them. And should he forget, Garth was always pleased to remind him. Dead man was his name for Davos. When he came by in the morning, it was always, Here, porridge for dead men, 
and at night it was, Blow out the candle, dead man. Davos had never seen a bigger axe than Lady Lou, nor one with the sharper edge. Garth spent his days honing her. The other keeper said, I will not plead for mercy, Davos resolved. He would go to his death a knight, asking only that they take his head before his hands. Even Garth would not be so cruel as to deny him that, he hoped. Garth the Green is based on the Horn God, the Fertility God, the Great Old One. And he is a fertility god, and so he's responsible for the harvest. And if you read the Garth the Green mythology in The World of Ice and Fire, he makes everything fertile, from the maidens to the flowers. So even here, we see Garth is still serving that role. He's bringing Davos his food. But he's also the one who's going to kill him. And it says in The World of Ice and Fire that the older, darker legends of, of Garth the Green... Uh, he demands sacrifice, human sacrifice, in order to make the seasons turn. And so that mythology is being shouted out here as well. So then it goes on and it says, Aside from his keepers, Davos Seaworth had the wolf's den to himself. He knew there were true dungeons down in the castle cellars, oubliettes and torture chambers and dank pits where huge black rats scrabbled in the darkness. His galers claimed that all of them were unoccupied at present. Only us here, Onion, Sir Bartimus had told him. He was the chief gaoler, a cadaverous one-legged knight with a scarred face and a blind eye. When Sir Bartimus was in his cups, and Sir Bartimus was in his cups most every day, he liked to boast of how he had saved Lord Wyman's life at the Battle of the Trident. The wolf's den was his reward. The rest of us consisted of a cook Davos never saw, six guardsmen in the ground-floor barracks, a pair of washerwomen, and the two turnkeys who looked after the prisoner. Thary was the young one, the son of one of the washerwomen, a boy of ten and four. The old one was Garth, huge and bald and taciturn, who wore the same greasy leather jerkin every day and always seemed to have a glower on his face. So, <laughs> the old one was Garth. And then a paragraph later we get Sir Bartimus telling the story of a long, cruel winter. Then a long, cruel winter fell, said Sir Bartimus. The white knife froze hard, and even the firth was icing up. The winds came howling from the north, and drove them slavers inside to huddle round their fires. And whilst they warmed themselves, the new king came down on them. Brandon Stark this was, Edric Snowbeard's great-grandson, him that men called Ice Eyes. He took the wolf's den back, stripped the slavers naked, and gave them to the slaves he'd found chained up in the dungeons. It is said they hung their entrails in the branches of the heart tree as an offering to the gods. The old gods, not these new ones from the south. Your seven don't know winter, and winter don't know them. Davos could not argue with the truth of that. From what he had seen at Eastwatch by the sea, he did not care to know winter either. What gods do you keep? He asked the one-legged knight. The old ones. So twice in the same passage, we get the old ones. One time they're the old gods, as they were in the other two quotes, and then the old one was Garth. And then it's also in a passage where they're talking about sacrificing humans to heart trees, and Edric Snowbeard and Ice Eyes Stark. So... So there you go. I'm going to expand on that, but uh, you can start to see that's the debut on Ideas of Ice and Fire of uh, my newest theory there. 
And I knew you would like it because what it says is that the old ones are basically the first green seers that went into the weirwoods. All right, that's super awesome. And you will be expanding on this theory on your podcast. So I think this is an excellent way to end the first episode of uh, this new podcast here. Great conversation. We talked about a lot of different magical creatures, a lot of ones that people don't really know exist. See, like I said in the beginning, you have to dig deeper to find some of these things and to uncover where they're hidden. They're just at the periphery of the story. You really have to look to like uncover some of them. And I think Martin just does that so well. And I'm just so grateful that I have this book series and I hope to continue to talk about this stuff and to continue to do this podcast in this new format. Cool, man. Thanks for having me on. That was loads of fun. Uh, always is coming on with you, but I think this new format's going to be really great. So I can't wait to see how it comes out. And uh, like I said, you can find all my stuff at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. I have a blog and a podcast that matches. So you can read or listen as you, uh, whichever is more convenient. And my YouTube videos are basically just my podcasts um, recorded on YouTube. So don't expect like tons of visuals and stuff. They're just my podcasts. I have one video that's a proper video that shows me like a nerd sitting in front of the camera, looking awkward and talking about stuff. And that's basically like my intro video. So I actually pinned that to the top of LucifermeansLightbringer.com and the top of my YouTube page. So if you're interested in my stuff and you've never checked me out, that's the first thing to do. It's like a half-hour video. It's the most accessible thing I can make because usually I make two-hour podcasts. Sorry about that. It's just how I roll. So uh, check out the video. If you like it, get into the podcast series. If you want to, um, if you like all that European folklore green man stuff, then I would recommend even starting with a series that I did called uh, The Sacred Order of Green Zombies. It's um it's probably the most accessible thing I've done uh, as far as podcast goes, and uh, a lot of people tell me that they they really like that one. It's got cool like Santa Claus mythology and stuff like that. And uh, so, in any case, thanks for having me on, Quinn, and I look forward to being back on sometime in the future. And that's it, everyone. Have a great day. And as always, follow Ideas of Ice and Fire on Twitter and Facebook. And if you feel so inclined, check me out on Patreon. So thanks everyone for watching and we'll see you on the next podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.